Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you have been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we have been involved in a series on the book of Hebrews. Um, This is now the seventh week in that series as we've been walking through um, this incredible book in the New Testament that challenges us to anchor our lives to Christ. We have seen as we have been in this study how the world in which we live and and even the, the sin nature that resides within us has a desire to cause us to drift away from the Savior. And if we do not actively remain anchored to Him, we can find a distance developing in our relationship with God over time. And, and the book of Hebrews is written to encourage believers like you and me to remain anchored to Him in an active way in our lives. And we've seen this over a, a number of weeks, and today we're going to have uh, another installment of that by looking at the longest single section of the book of Hebrews, and that is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 18. But uh, before we look at those verses together, let me, let me pray once again for our time. Father, thank you for today, and thank you for your word and for your spirit that resides within the hearts of your people here. Father, I pray that your spirit would be alive now and would just illuminate your word for us. Father, we do not need to hear from me today, but we need to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that that would be what happens. And Father, I pray that you would help me to to stay out of the way and just be used as you would see fit in... um, bringing this text today. Uh, Father, I pray that you would protect me from saying anything you wouldn't want said, but if I do say something you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. But Father, any words that I share that are your words for us, I pray that we would remember them and we would believe them, we would walk forward in them in the power of your Spirit, we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to take you back to Christmas 1995. Uh, Christmas 1995, I was nine months from being married. I was one month from being engaged, and yet I was the only one who knew it. And so, given that situation, I was looking for opportunities to spend time over the holidays with my hope-to-be future in-laws. And so, when I got an invitation to go over to uh, my wife's, my my current, my, my now wife, my current wife, my now wife, uh, at the time, my girlfriend, I had a chance to go over to her house um, to help decorate the Christmas tree. I, I just jumped at that opportunity. And so we're over there, and I did what you would do if you were in a similar situation as me. I'm, I'm laying on the charm, you know, yes, ma'am, no, sir. Can I get that for you? Let me get the box out of the, out of the closet. Let me help get this all spread out. I mean, I'm, I'm laying it on thick. I know that one month from now, I'm going to ask for their daughter's hand in marriage. This is an important time of decorating the tree. Um, well, as we're, we're getting all these things set up, you know, I, I, we begin to, we got the ornaments spread out. It's time to actually hang ornaments on the tree. And this is something I'd had experience with in my life growing up. I was always a part of decorating the tree at our house. But uh, we were artificial tree people. Uh, how many of you are artificial tree people? Um, I was an artificial tree person. And if you're an artificial tree person, then you're at a deficit when it comes to decorating a real tree. Because on an artificial tree, every branch has the same strength. But on a real tree... Certain branches are stronger than others. 
And uh, I found that out that day as I grabbed this beautiful little ceramic rocking horse to hang on the tree. I think it was either my first or my second ornament to hang uh, that night. And I, I grabbed this little guy and I take it over to the tree and I hang it on a branch. Um, again, in my mind, every branch has the same strength. And I turn back to grab another ornament and this branch goes careening off of the tree down to the hardwood floor beneath, breaking into three pieces. Now, when you're trying to impress your future in-laws, this is not the scene that you want to develop. Um, And not only that, but it had to be the little ceramic horse that Kimberly made when she was in third grade. You can't go to Hallmark and buy another one of these. Um, So it hits the floor. It breaks into three pieces. I did exactly what you would have done. I shoved it under the tree skirt. thinking maybe it wouldn't be found until next year or something, at least maybe after I got permission to go ahead. Um, But as soon as I'm sliding it under the tree skirt, I hear, what was that? Um, I had to pull it out. I had to explain my lack of understanding of the strength of branches. Um, So now, not only have I broken something, but I'm an idiot. And um, thankfully, I'm I'm extended grace by my mother-in-law. Um, and, and this ornament has glued back together, and it's hung on Kimberly and I's tree ever since, a reminder of, of her, her just grace and mercy to me. Um, but, you know, I, I think about that, and I think about that experience of learning that not every branch is equally strong, and, and I was thinking about that this week as it pertains to our study of the book of Hebrews. We've, we've mentioned this week after week after week that we need to anchor our souls to something. We saw last week in, in Hebrews chapter 6 that we have a strong anchor for our soul in the heavenly places. Uh, it's, it's important for us to anchor to something, but I think what's really important for us is to think of what are we anchoring our lives to. Are we anchoring our souls to something that is strong and stable, or are we anchoring our souls to something that will fall apart? It's it's an important question to ask, as this ornament lets me know. If, if we're pinning our hopes to something flimsy, then we have no hope at all. But if we're pinning our hopes to a strong branch, then we can have sure hope in uncertain times. And as we look at the book of Hebrews today, uh, I really think we're seeing a section of Scripture that is written for us, communicated to us, preserved for us in the book of Hebrews so that we might know that Christ is a strong branch worthy for us to anchor to. As a matter of fact, the the writer of the book of Hebrews writes this section from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 18, really to make one point, and that is to say that Jesus is the best thing that we could ever anchor to, better than any other religious system that has ever been, better than the Old Testament system of sacrifices and law better than anything that could possibly be. There there is one Jesus Christ, and he is strong, and we should anchor to him. In this section, we see that Christ is better. And this morning, we're going to look at these verses, not every one, because there's a number of verses here. We're going to hit a selection of verses from chapter 7 through chapter 10, But I believe it's a section of verses that will help us to understand the main message of this section, and that is that Jesus is better, that he is strong enough for us to anchor to. So we're going to look at that 
together today. Now, as we do that, and as we look at these three things that where Jesus is shown to be better than, where Jesus is shown to be strong, uh, my hope is that we'll see in this just the beauty of our Savior, and we might be drawn to Him. John Hanna, who's one of my favorite professors at seminary, um, had a statement about his teaching ministry that I, I thought was um, really great, and I, I think about this often. This is what Dr. Hanna says about his preaching. He says, my, my goal in preaching is to create a category called Christ, and if the Spirit would bless it to make it beautiful, that it would influence our affections because we choose what we like. And my hope and prayer for us today as we look at the greatness of Christ is that our hearts would be one to Him, that we might trust Him because we choose that which is beautiful, and that which is great. We're going to see three ways in which Christ is better than anything that has ever been. The strong branch for us to anchor to this morning. The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better priest. We see this in chapter 7, verses 23 to 28. Jesus is a better priest. Now, in the Old Testament system, uh, there was a high, an office of high priest. Um, the high priest was someone who was the representative of the people of God before God. They were the one who was able to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year as a representative of the people to demonstrate the closeness and association that God had with his people. They were the ones that were able to offer certain sacrifices on behalf of the people. They were the ones that made intercession for the people. The Old Testament system, the Old Testament life was a life that had a number of priests. And in the book of Hebrews, one of the recurrent themes in the book is that Jesus is our high priest today, that the the office of high priest has been upgraded from a, a person among us to the Son of God who resides in heaven, that that the high priest for all of God's people today is not held in any earthly office, but it's held by Jesus himself. Uh, that's, that's the role of high priest, and, and the, the book is written to argue to that end. Um, and we're going to see in just a moment um, how Jesus is better than the earthly high priests. Um, but one of the things that I think is important for us when we talk about Jesus as our priest, one of the things that's important for us to grasp, um, and, and we're, gonna, we're skipping these verses, but uh, you may have questions, and that is, who is Melchizedek? Because at various times and places in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is said to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And um, if, if as, as you know, Gentile people today, we read that and we might wonder, what in the world are they talking about? Why is it important to say that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Well, the, the whole idea in saying that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek is just to say that Jesus is not a priest of the order of the Levites. See, every priest from the time of Moses on down to the time of Christ was a, a blood descendant of the tribe of Levi. Um, and these Levitical priests, uh, the sons of Levi, uh, were, were always the ones that held this office of priest, and they operated under the covenant that was established in the Old Testament. That was just the, the way in which it worked. And Jesus comes along as a member of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. And so for a Hebrew person reading this, they might have wondered, well, is Jesus' priesthood legitimate since he is not a blood descendant of, of Levi? 
And, and the answer to that is that there's an example in the book of Genesis of a priest that existed outside of the bloodline of Levi, and that was the person Melchizedek, of whom Abraham paid tribute at one time. And so the whole point in saying Melchizedek is to saying that Jesus is a legitimate priest who is existing outside of the Levitical system. He's a priest like the Genesis example of Melchizedek. Uh, Jesus is a legitimate priest, and Jesus is the priest who is better than any other priest that the Old Testament lays out. Uh, Verses 23 to 28 tell us how and why. This is what it says. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, meaning Jesus, his priesthood permanently because Jesus continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, in those verses, we see Jesus described as a high priest who is better than the Levitical high priests of the Old Testament. And there's at least two ways in which Jesus is a better priest. The first one is that Jesus is a priest who will never give up his office. See, the Old Testament priests of the order of Levi, the high priest always had their term cut short by death. There was no Old Testament priest in the order of Levi who never died. Therefore, when they would die, someone else from the tribe would step up and fill that role. And in this way, a number of men fulfilled the office of high priest over the course of the Old Testament time. But the passage is is pretty clear in verses 23 to 25 that one of the advantages of Christ is that once he has assumed the role of high priest, which he has now, uh, that he will never leave office because he will never die. Jesus died once, he was resurrected from the grave, and now he currently sits enthroned in heaven serving as our high priest, and since he will never die again, there will never be another who will take his place. See, our hope is attached to one who will never leave office. This is, this is important, and we, we know this in our, in our political sense. I mean, don't get too attached to a political candidate, they could get voted out. You know, in, in our world, the things that we'd want to pin hopes to in a temporal way in this life ultimately could be voted out, they could die, something could change. But, but when our hope is placed in Christ, that's, a, that's someone that will never leave office, that will never change. Jesus will always be serving as our high priest, and that ought to give us great comfort. It says that he continually stands before the Father making intercession for us. Jesus is, is right now in heaven mentioning your name to the Father. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And the fact that he will never leave doesn't mean that the next high priest, means for us the next high priest, because there won't be one, would somehow forget us. Jesus is constant, therefore our hope is constant. He's alive, therefore our hope is alive. 
And I was thinking about that and the, the importance of that. And, and uh, you've, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I think it's an appropriate one uh, to help understand the importance of Jesus not seceding his office. And, and this story has to do with Pete Rose, the great baseball player. Um, Pete Rose was the all-time hits leader. He was a wonderful player uh, in his playing days. And, and after he retired from playing baseball, he became the manager of the Cincinnati Reds. And while he was managing the Cincinnati Reds, he came, uh, became accused of betting on the game of baseball. This is the ultimate no-no in the world of baseball. You just don't bet on the game without there being significant consequences. And so Bart Giamatti, who was the, um, who was the, the commissioner of baseball at the time, this is 1989, goes to Pete Rose and says, Pete, you've been accused of this incredible thing. We don't have hard proof at this point, but it sure looks like you did it. We're going to need to punish you, and here's what we're going to do. Bart Giamatti liked Pete Rose. He knew Pete Rose was good for the game, but he had to be punished. And so Bart Giamatti says to Pete Rose, I will give you a 10-year suspension from baseball if you'll just admit wrongdoing and apologize. And Pete Rose says, I won't admit it. I won't apologize. And so Bart Giamatti thought for for a while, and then he came back to Pete, and he says, we need to resolve this, Pete Rose, and so I'll offer you seven years suspension from baseball if you just admit wrongdoing and apologize. And Pete says, you don't understand. I'm not going to admit wrongdoing. I'm not going to apologize. And so Bart Giamatti, the press of the story, is starting to get out. He's feeling pressure. He feels a need to resolve this. And so he goes back to Pete Rose, and he says, listen, how about an indefinite suspension from baseball, a lifetime suspension, an indefinite suspension from baseball that's reviewable after one year, but you don't have to apologize. And Bart Giamatti tells Pete Rose, in one year from now, I will reinstate you to the game. Well, that was a solution that Pete Rose could live with. And so he handshaked Bart Giamatti, and he pinned his hope to the commissioner's promise. Nine days later, Bart Giamatti died. And 23 years later, Pete Rose is still not in baseball. Pete Rose pinned his hopes to a man who died, and the next one that came along did not share Giamatti's opinion. So his hope died with Bart Giamatti. You know, in in our lives, we are hope for eternity is pinned to a Savior who will never give up his office. It's pinned to a Savior who will never forget our name. It's pinned to a Savior who is right now in heaven bringing your name before the Father saying, there with me. And he will never give up that post. See, Jesus as a better high priest, because he will never give up office, and we never have to worry about who would follow him. Our hope is alive. Another way, though, that is mentioned in which Jesus is a better high priest is that Jesus is not sinful. See, the other high priests that had lived before all had sin in their lives, but Jesus is, is sinless. Now, this is incredibly important because think about high priests. Can you think of the name of any high priest that ever lived? I can think of one, right? Uh, in, in after the, the time of, of Aaron, I, I can think of one. That's Caiaphas. And why do I know the name of Caiaphas? Because he was high priest at the time that 
Jesus was crucified. He was a part and parcel with the plan. He was the driver behind the push to to take Christ to the cross. See, the high priest at that time, he, he he was a sinful guy, and that was within the lifetime of when the book of Hebrews was written. See, the office of high priest had become corrupt because people are corrupt. Can you imagine having your representative before God being somebody who would be willing to turn over the Savior to crucifixion? Somebody that had their own agendas and and, and ideas and and would be swayed to those kinds of things? See, when Jesus is said to be a better high priest, he's better not just because he's always standing at his role as high priest, but because he's sinless. Um, Verses 26 to 28 are very clear that Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. He doesn't forget. He doesn't carry his own agenda. He's willing to lay down his life for us. He's committed love to us that won't change, and and that is the one who is standing before us. To say that Jesus is the better high priest is the biggest understatement in the Bible, saying that we have one who stands before us, one who stands before God now, representing us, who will never change and who will always do the will of God. Now, what does that mean for us? What is the hope for you and I in light of that? Well, the hope for you and I in in, in light of that is that we can have an assurance of our salvation. We can be certain that when we die, we'll spend an eternity with God because we have one who is standing before God right now who is saying, they are with me. If you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your hope is found not in some past activity, not in some, um, you know, wannabe hope or, or desire or wish, but it's found in the fact that there is standing before God, your advocate right now making constant intercession for you, and he will never leave his post, and he will never change his mind. Because of that, it's not arrogant for those of us who know Christ to speak of an assurance of our salvation. Now, a second thing that ties off of that, though, is that our assurance of salvation is found in Him and not in us. You know, sometimes when we talk about things like assurance of salvation or is somebody saved, we talk about it in terms of placing faith in some past activity of theirs. You know, assurance is found in the fact that they threw the stick on the fire at camp or they walked forward here or they were part of this ceremony there or, or whatever it might be. And we, we look back to that as if to say our assurance is found in some past activity. But to me, the, 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 what the book of Hebrews is telling us is our assurance is not found in some past activity. Our assurance is found in the present activity of Christ. Now, this is not to say that when we began our relationship with God, that wasn't a significant moment. It was. Every relationship begins with an introduction. Every, there, there's, there's a start to that. It's, it's right for us to look back with fondness on the time when we came to Christ. But our assurance of salvation is not in how firmly we believed then or, or how emotional we felt then or, or how strongly we grabbed then. Our, our hope and assurance of salvation is found in the present and in the work of Christ standing before God, lifting your name up to him. And if you are sitting here today longing for an assurance that when you die you're with him, don't think back to, well, did I believe it hard enough, think hard enough? I, did I throw the stick on the fire? Did it burn up? Did the, 
whatever, you know. Think of, think of the present. Right now as you sit here today, where is your hope? Is your hope in the one who is standing before God interceding for you? Or is your hope in something else? If your hope is in God, know that it's a firm hope, a living hope, and we can have assurance of our salvation because of that. See, Jesus is a better high priest. Second thing, Jesus has better promises. Jesus has better promises. We see this in chapter 8, verses 6 to 12. See, Jesus was offering to God's people a better arrangement than had been offered in the Old Testament time. See, in the history of God's dealings with his people from the time of Moses until today, there's only been two different operating systems, two different arrangements, two different covenants by which God related to his people. In the Old Testament, uh, we know that as the Old Covenant. This was the covenant that was based on the law that was given through Moses to the people of God, the Ten Commandments and all the outworkings of that, um, where they learned about the holiness of God and their sinfulness and and they had a system of sacrifices to temporarily cover sins um, and, and as, as they lived out their life, those kinds of things, that that was this, this old covenant time. But when Jesus comes, he says, I am bringing a new covenant, a new arrangement by which people can relate to God. Um, Jesus said at his last supper that his blood initiated a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new operating system. And this is the one in which we now live. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that this new covenant is better than the previous covenant that God had with his people through Moses. We see this in verses 6 and 7. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The idea is that that Jesus um, would not have downgraded people's relationship with God. He upgraded it. Um, This is good to know. This is the same thing with us. You typically don't sell your Apple computer to your your brand new Apple computer to go back to the Commodore 64. Just doesn't happen, right? Um, We upgrade things. God and his arrangement with humanity did not step back, but he stepped forward. He upgraded the way in which we related. He said it's enacted on better promises. Well, what was this better covenant, this better arrangement that God enacted with his people, Um, this new covenant? Well, in in verses 8 through 12, it's outlined for us what that was. And in verses 8 to 12, we see a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, which describes this new covenant, this new arrangement, which is better. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
See, this, this new arrangement, this new operating system by which God would relate to his people was better than the old. And we get to experience the, the, the blessing of that as people who live in a new covenant time. Uh, to say that it's better means to say that it's better and that we actually have real forgiveness of sins, real purification from our sins because we live in this new time. To say that it's better means to say that this, this new covenant relationship has God's word, not merely as an external weight, but as an internal support. That God's work in our lives is not just something on the outside, but it's something on the inside. We have the opportunity to be recreated in Him. This is the benefit and the blessing of the new covenant. And if you have uh, been a believer in Christ, uh, you are experiencing the blessings of being a new covenant person. And yet, sometimes as people who live today, we forget the blessing that we have of living today because we never experienced the old covenant. We didn't experience the old, and so sometimes we can fail to appreciate the new. I, I liken this to, to, to people today who experience things that they never had to live without. I play a game around our house, and it drives my wife crazy, but, but I play it anyway. And that game is, what year, in, in what year were people born who are starting college this year? Um, it, it drives her crazy because it gets later and later all the time. Um, this year, 1994, 1994, college freshmen were born in, in 1994. Now, for me, everything, c- contemporary events are anything that happened after the Carter administration, all right? So um, thinking that people weren't born until 94, that just blows my mind. But you think about the things that somebody who was born uh, in 1994 that they just take for granted. They, they never knew a time without the Internet. They never had school without computers. Um, think about it as, as a parent, if you're talking to a student who's starting college this year and they're complaining about having to write this paper and format it, uh, and, and you talk about having to, to do that on a typewriter where one mistake and the whole page was ruined, right? Or if you were really fancy, maybe one of those word processors um, that had a little bit of memory. But, you know, think, think of just the, the things that are taken for granted by people today um, because they never had to live without them. You know, we run the risk as believers in Christ of failing to appreciate the benefits of the new covenant because we never experienced the old. You know, if, if I was reading this passage to the original audience, this would be the thing that would be the most encouraging, possibly, of the entire book, a reminder that the arrangement has changed. It's been upgraded. But for us, when we read it, sometimes we miss the emotion of that because we're just so used to it. And part of what I think God wants to do when we read passages like this is is to remind us, to give us some historical perspective about how good we have it as believers in Christ. If you've trusted in Him, your sins are forgiven. If you've trusted in Him, His Spirit resides within you. If you've trusted in Him, that Spirit can empower you to live out His Word, not just condemn you for your failure to live up to it. All of those things I just listed are things that would have been hopes and dreams of those who lived before Christ, but are realities for everyone who has lived after him, who's trusted him. See, we need an appreciation of the fact that our Savior is the strong branch who offers us better promises. See, we serve a God who offers us this better priest in Christ, who offers us better promises in the new covenant. But also, we need to know that Jesus provides a better purification from our sins. A better purification from our sins. 
We see this in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, and then 11 to 18. See, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant time, God had a system for covering people's sins. And that system involved a series of sacrifices that could be offered uh, as, as temporary covering for people's sins. There were five different sacrifices that God's people would offer as outlined in, in the law. Two of those dealt with sin. One of them was an offering for people's sin that they committed unintentionally, and one was for people's sins that they committed intentionally. But God created this system of sacrifices. But when Christ comes along and dies on the cross for, for sin, um, he upgrades sacrifice from a temporary covering to something far greater. And we see in chapter 10, beginning in in verses 1 to 4, that Jesus' sacrifice is superior to the Old Testament sacrifice. It says this, it says, "...for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near." Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? In other words, these sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be offered all the time. And if they would have done the trick of providing cleansing, then there wouldn't have been a need to continue to offer them. But because of their ineffectiveness, they had to be offered over and over and over again. Can you imagine having all of your sins needing a sacrifice? over and over. I mean, there's not enough animals in the state of Oklahoma for me. Um, And we're like an agrarian kind of state. I mean, I can't imagine. Um, Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, in these verses, we're, we're shown that the blood of those sacrifices never actually provided payment for sin. And so the question we ought to have is, well, what was the point of the sacrifices? I mean, why is it that the sacrifices were asked to be offered by God over and over and over again if they weren't actually forgiving anything to begin with? And, uh, you know, quickly, I, I want to just mention that there's, there's two different uh, answers to that, I believe. Uh, the first answer to why God had the, His people offer sacrifices, even if they didn't permanently cover sin, was to help teach them that the wages of sin was death. See, for people who lived in this era, who lived in the Old Covenant, their worship would have been very bloody. Over and over and over again, sacrifices would have needed to be offered. And it was helping to teach them that because of my sin, a death needed to occur. Because of my sin, a death needed to, be, to occur. Because of my sin, a death needed to occur, to occur. And so when we read in Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is death, Somebody who experienced the Old Covenant would go, absolutely, I totally understand that. I've been offering sacrifices at the altar all of my life in recognition of that truth. See, for us who live today who have not offered sacrifice, the wages of sin is death is an abstract concept. For somebody that lived under the Old Covenant, though, it was not abstract. It was very concrete. Because of our sin, a death was necessary. So part of the reason was instructive to help let them know that the wages of sin was death. But a second reason why I think God had uh, sacrifice as a part of worship um, in, the, in the Old Covenant was um, to help show, uh, like, like, like checks, as 
down payments for sin. Think, think about this. We live in a world where we don't write checks very often anymore. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of cards or cash now, but not as many checks. But, but think about what a check is. When you write a check, uh, that check really has no value unless there is a deposit in the bank that is sufficient to cover the amount that is written on that check, right? That's kind of the, the definition of a check. Uh, if, if I could just write checks for different amounts and had, did not have to worry about having a deposit in the bank to cover, I would write more checks. You know, I just, yeah, you want some money? I'll write you some more. Um, but because there has to be a de- sufficient deposit to cover, then the check is only as valuable as what's in the bank behind it. And the Old Testament sacrifices really are like checks that were written in faith by the people of God for over a thousand years, hoping and believing that God would provide sufficient funds to cover. And what happened when Christ went to the cross was that he offered his perfect life, his totally righteous life, he offered that to us in exchange for taking on our sins so that the wrath of God might be fully satisfied in him so that we might be forgiven. His death was the deposit that covered the checks written in the Old Testament sacrifice. See, Jesus offers a better purification from sins just as the bank deposit is greater than the check that you write. It goes on in verse 11. It says this. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Can you imagine how exciting that job would be? I'm going to continually offer sacrifices that cannot take away sins. That was the role of the, of the Old Testament priest. And they had to continue to do it because they were ineffective and temporary. But it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, when he died on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time and until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us uh, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. See, Jesus' death on the cross was the deposit, the one-time deposit, sufficient to cover all of the payments from there on. And what this means for you and me is that we can actually experience forgiveness. We are people who are in need of forgiveness. And I was reminded of this uh, recently. I told you guys a few weeks ago, I went to my 20-year high school reunion um, at the, the first weekend in June. And um, I'm back in, 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 my, in my hometown and, and back at the high school, and I was, I was excited for that reunion. I was thinking about that experience, looking forward to it, reconnecting with old friends, seeing the old high school, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there was one thing I really wasn't prepared for, and, and that was feelings of guilt. You know, when I was back in that setting, when I was back in that high school, and when I saw certain faces, I was reminded of things that I was ashamed of. 
I was reminded of things I did, of people I hurt, of things I shouldn't have done, and it, and it just came flooding back, back into me. And I remember thinking at various points in that weekend, just thinking, Lord, where is this coming from? I, I know that I'm forgiven. Why is this emotion so real? Why is this regret so dominating me? And it, it's, it, the, the, the bottom line is it's because I needed to be reminded of how forgiven I really was. See, we are people who are in need of forgiveness. And, and what this passage tells us is the thing that was necessary for our forgiveness happened over 2,000 years ago when Christ died on the cross. That one action was sufficient. We do not have to wait for something else to occur in order for us to experience forgiveness. And this is contrary to what we sometimes think. See, we think, you know, God will eventually forgive me if I am sad long enough. You know, if, if I am sad for my sin for a week, then God might forgive me. You know, if, if I, uh, sometimes we think of it not in terms of a length of times of feeling sad, but it's about doing a number of good things. If I just do enough good things after this bad thing, that'll show God that I'm serious, and then maybe one day he'll forgive me. But the truth of Hebrews 10 is that the thing that was necessary for our forgiveness has already occurred. Therefore, forgiveness can be ours, not someday, but today. The wrath of God towards us because of our sin was satisfied in Christ. Therefore, when we go to him and ask for forgiveness, the funds are sufficient to cover. The check can be cashed today. And this is incredibly important for us to remember because we are a people who are in need of forgiveness. You see, we serve a God who offers us something better. He offers us a better priest who is constantly standing before the Father, interceding for us so that we have a hope that is eternal. He gives us better promises and the opportunity to live in relationship with God in this incredible era of the new covenant. And he gives us a purification from sins that can be experienced in reality today. See, that because of those reasons, we, we ought to understand that Jesus is a strong branch on which we can anchor our souls to. You know, this little horse is together today because it's been glued back together. Um, and the reality for many of us is that we have tried to hang our lives on other things, a weak branches of our own effort, our own strength, maybe another religion, whatever it might be. We've tried to hang our lives on many things, and we've seen our lives fall and hit the floor and break into pieces. But in Christ, what he is offering is to recreate us, to glue us back together, and to hang us in beautiful trophy of his grace on the strong arm of his tree. Are you trusting in him today? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as they come, I'm going to have them lead us in a closing song and and uh, the song that we're going to sing today talks about the greatness of our God, um, that our God is greater, our God is, is stronger, our God is higher than any other. Um, as we sing these words, let the, let the words of Hebrews 7 to 10 be, be right on the, on the tip of your tongue, um, because we serve a God 
to his body. Uh, please join us. Stand and worship.